0: Good morning, good morning. Uh, We are glad that you are here. Shout out again to those who brave the uh, torrential downpours to get here. And for those online uh, watching that way as well, we are grateful, regardless of where you are, that you thought it not robbery uh, to come to gather and worship together. Um, I love this series um, on the summer in the Psalms. And I mean, the first two messages have just been amazing but also because the Psalms probably touch me more than any other book in the Bible. And the reason why is because they they help us deal with the depth of the heart of the human experience. They help us see past our doubts and our frustrations, but they confront them head on. And they remind us of the struggles of life. And probably there's no better place to see that than in the Psalm we're gonna be looking at today, Psalm 73. Now, to give you some context, um, I used to think the Psalms were just like a random collection of, you know, songs and poems and prayers. But you start to understand when you study that there's actually five, it's organized in five distinct books within the book of Psalms. And book two, which is really populated a lot by the struggles of David, and you see those are the ones that have like those uh, superscriptions that say David when you know, after he had sinned with Bathsheba or David when Saul was after him. And that ends in Psalm 72 verse 20. It says the prayers of David are ended. And what we see with Psalm 73 is book three. In book three, the tone of the Psalms darkens. You hear a new voice as well, a brother named Asaph. And Asaph's Psalms, he, he's one of those dudes that keeps it real. He challenges and wrestles with the questions of justice and the justice of God in a broken world, and, 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 and it's just really remarkable to see what he went through. But before we see his words, I just want to give you a little bit more of who Asaph was. You see, we don't see his, first, his name first in Psalm 73. Actually, you go into 1 Chronicles chapter 16. And what we discover is that David, when he triumphantly and joyfully was bringing the Ark of the Covenant of God into Jerusalem, he appoints Asaph to be the one to organize the worship and praise party going on. He says, I want Asaph to be the guy that leads the way. And so we read in 1 Chronicles 16, 4 and 5, it says, Then he, talking about David, appointed some of the Levites as ministers before the ark of the Lord to invoke, to thank, and to praise the Lord, the God of Israel. And the first part of verse 5 says, Asaph was the chief. So not only was this brother an accomplished singer-songwriter, but he was the guy that was tapped to lead the people into worship in this incredibly important, significant, historical moment of them bringing the Ark of the Covenant, which was essentially symbolizing God's presence with them as they were entering into this new city. Asaph was a faithful follower of God, but yet, despite all of the things that he was doing in his leadership, his life was marked by difficulty. And specifically as he looked around and saw those who had no regard for God prosper. And so David, I mean, Asaph in Psalm 73 expresses a frustration that many of us have experienced. And so the title for today is the struggle is real. Is your worship? The struggle is real. Are you? And so... We're going to just explore three points real quick. I'll give you the overview, and then we'll get out your way. The first is ASAP's starting point. The second is ASAP's struggle. And then the third is ASAP's solution. And I believe and I hope that what we see in ASAP will help us to understand how we can navigate some of the same challenges that still go on with us. Is that all right today? All right. The more y'all talk back to me, the quicker it'll be. So, you know, keep it going. (laughs) So, the starting point. We see in verse 1, God is good, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And the first point is this is where where Asaph starts. It starts like a lot of Psalms with just declaring the truth of the goodness of God. And, And not just in a generic kind of broad sense, But he specifically, when he says to Israel, that was invoking and pointing to this unique relationship, the covenant that God had established to show his glory off through a particular group of people, not just so that those people can feel better than others, but so that he could essentially bless the world. We see that in Abraham when he says, look, as far as you see the stars in the sky, that's how many people I'm gonna bless using you. You will be blessed to be a blessing. But in particular, not everybody who was in Israel was necessarily doing right. And so he, he gives this additional clarification to those who are pure in heart. And so in this, he is talking about the righteous, just nature of God that we ought to celebrate. And he's saying, God is good all the time. And all the time? Somebody had been to church before. And this motto is true, but it must be properly understood because a person holding an overly simplistic understanding of this model can be easily disillusioned by life and by God. If you take this statement to mean that God is good, right? And and, and, and instead of defining that as God defines it in scripture, if I define it as I define it, then I will say, okay, because God is good to those with pure heart, that means that Anything that I want to see happen in this life, all I have to do is just trust God and he's good and he's gonna hook me up. And then that's when we get into trouble. Because even though God is good, we live in a broken world. And the second point in this song talks about Asaph's struggle. So turn to somebody and say, the struggle is real. <laughs> turn to somebody else, say the struggle is real. Look, 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 look at what happens. Look at what happens. He says, verse two, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Why? Verse three, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Can we get real right now? Asaph's struggle was that he saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now, we can't forget, this is why it was so important to know who he was. He wasn't just some random dude. He's the worship leader in Israel. He's this person who wrote 11 of the Psalms in this book of Psalms, in book three. And he's like, yo, I'm struggling. I'm struggling with my faith. I'm struggling with reconciling what I believe about God with what my eyes are seeing around me. Can you relate to Asaph? You see, now, before we get into it, and then he also acknowledges, I'm envious. Well, who are the wicked? Let's let's get into that a little bit. Because the reality is anyone can act wickedly at any point, right? Like, that's part of what we will see even in this text. And that always has consequences. We reap what we sow. But when the Psalms and Proverbs refer to the wicked... It's not just referring to the fact that we all have a sense of brokenness and make mistakes sometimes. It's like, it's one thing if, let's just say hypothetically, I was stopped by the police for speeding, hypothetically, and when the officer stopped by and asked and said, do you know what the speed limit, do you know how fast you are going, and hypothetically I was like, uh, no. <laughs> You know, we can understand there are circumstances where the pressure, the fear, the whatever might cause you to speak in a way that may be not completely true. But that's different than when your default setting is online. Now now both are not I'm not justifying one over the other. I'm just saying, you know, there are certain people where you can't even ask them the time of day and they without them spitting out lies. If it benefits them, their worldview and perspective is that I will cheat, steal, lie in order to get what I want. That's the default setting. That's a a, a posture, a perspective. And this is what Psalmist and what Asaph is talking about in regards to the wicked. Specifically, these are those who have turned away from God and set their sights on what this world has to offer. They rebel against God. And with greed and arrogance, act unjustly and take what they want. And the righteous, the Psalms and Proverbs contrast, are those who seek to follow the Lord. Now again, not doing this perfectly, not doing this in a way that looks down on anybody else, but to try to live within the will of God, in the midst of my brokenness. And so Asaph struggles with the apparent contradiction between the goodness of God and the prosperity of those who thumb their nose at him, put up their finger at him, and say, God doesn't see, I'm doing my thing. And I can relate to that, can you? Can I testify for a minute? So, when I was a senior in high school, um, I was you know, killing it in my GPA, National Honor Society, all that, and at the end of the time, at the end of our like, the, the, the last half of the semester, it was between me and some other student about who was going to have the highest GPA. And my biggest, my Achilles heel was, a calc- was calculus. I struggled with calculus, it was hard, I still do. And so I would pull all-nighters, I would do my thing, and at the end of the day, I remembered the calculus test that I had studied for and struggled with and got a C on, and looking over at the person who would then win the valedictorian and saw her cheating. She had put the formulas inside the calculator you know, cover, you know what I mean, you know that, and, and she won the valedictorian. She won the money that came with that, the accolades. And I got to learn what a salutatorian was. That's the person that comes in second, that nobody cares about, and I envied that. I struggled with that, because I was like, dang, I was trying to do it the right way. I knew that this was a weak spot, but have you ever felt that way where you're out here trying to live according to God's way, and and, and you're out here volunteering your time, and, 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 and giving your offerings to the kingdom of God, and meanwhile, you got a friend, a family member, somebody who all they think about is themselves. And it seems like you just see the glow up. Can I can I keep it real for a second? You 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 might be starting to sit here and honor God with your body and your relationships and trying to like find someone that meets the standards of what you feel like God is wanting to do in your life, and then somebody else is just boom, just pulling people, swiping right, and they swiping back all the time. And you're like, Really, Lord? Is this worth it? Is my living in vain? While Asaph had once been confident in God, his faith is now faltering. He has been faithful to God, and yet he struggles with the, while the wicked have no regard for, the, for God. And then he gets, into, he gets even deeper. Like he, he don't just kind of does this cursory. In verse 4, he says, he gets into the specifics of his complaint. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Asaph struggles with the financial and physical prosperity of the wicked. Now, some people say physical prosperity. It says that their bodies are fat and sleek. This is where you gotta know the historical context. See, in the ancient Near East, thickness was actually something that was quite celebrated. And a sign of God's blessing, because it was like, if I'm struggling to even find food to eat, then I'm gonna be, you know, not that thick. But if I got enough and then some to like, you know, pack it on, and it's like, yo, Look at that person being blessed. And if you've ever seen a Renaissance painting, you'll see that that was the case for much of human history. Which, you know, just goes to show us how warped we can have this idea of our body images and what we think is defined as beautiful. But that's a message for another day. But he, but he looks at that and says, wow, and they, 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 their, their, their physical features show off the fact that they have blessing, but not only that, They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Like, even when they get caught doing stuff, it don't seem to matter. There's so many examples that I was thinking about as I was preparing for this this week, just reading the news, right? Like, a couple days ago, people found out Bank of America staff were literally opening credit card accounts on customers' behalf without their knowledge, right? Yeah, yeah, you better check check your credit report. They were charging like fees if you overdrafted, and then they would charge you twice, three times, sometimes like it, it's all of this stuff. And then they get hit with a fine, and they just write that sucker off and keep it moving. And that's just the one example. We can go Wells Fargo. We can go. We can go any example of all of these things. And don't get me started on healthcare. So like we look at this stuff and we go, man, it doesn't even seem like even when they get caught, they don't really get caught. But not only are they financially prospering, in verse 6, look at what it says. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Verse 8, he goes on to say, they scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. Verse 9, they set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. No, no, that strutting is talking about they flexing with it. They set their mouths against heaven. He's struggling with the pride of the wicked. The fact that they flaunt their sinful ways. The fact that they are the cause and source of all types of injustice and oppression and seem not to care. In fact, we'll brag about it. We'll brag about what they will do with those who are vulnerable, with impunity. Asaph struggles with the pride of the wicked and the prosperity of the wicked and looks at their lives and concludes something. It gets real bleak and serious and real for him because look at what he says is the result of all of this prosperity that they see. He says in verse 10, therefore his, meaning God's people, turn their back to him and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there any knowledge in the most high? It would be bad enough if I just saw their prosperity and their pride. But then on top of that, I got to see their popularity. And the popularity that extends so much that even those who I used to, who ASAP used to go into the sanctuary and temple and worship with are now being pulled away into doing it in the way that says, yo, crime pays into being sucked up into all of this. And again, if I could just be real with you as a pastor, this hits hard. You know, this has been a time period where, For a lot of us, because of COVID, because of just disorientation, dislocation, a lot of folks have not had the ability or the choice to continue to come and worship, and some have walked away and wandered from the faith and then start preaching the very lifestyles that they used to, we used to celebrate walking with God, and now that's not the case anymore. And there's something, there's a unique pain with that, that comes with that, when you can feel like you're starting to be alone, right? That the, the world just seems to be gaining followers and you just out here by yourself trying to live right and live for God. And you might be asking yourself like Asaph, what is the point of doing good and struggling with God? Like you'd be like, I can do bad all by myself. <laughs> and what happens when you see the people that are called like God's people, actually employing the tactics of the wicked. Can we talk about it? How you could see prosperity pimps, I mean preachers, using the word of God to rob people. Seeing people literally throw money at their feet while they pay for a private jet. Meanwhile, I'm trying to exegete the text in the Hebrew and Greek and got credit card debt. I'm just keeping it real. Like, I, I, you know, this is a struggle. Like, like, yo, what's going on? So he reaches this conclusion. Verse eight, I mean, verse 13. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. Some commentators think and reflect that maybe Asaph was even struggling physically because he mentions the physical prosperity of the wicked several times ago. And that's even, that's when it takes it even further, right? Not only am I just financially struggling or whatever, but like, it feels like God is even attacking my body. Meanwhile, I'm seeing somebody on IG live their best life who could care less about God. Are you feeling Asaph's lament? Well, he's not the only one that has asked this question throughout history. You know, Marvin Gaye was once asked in an interview why he wrote the most iconic album that he's known for, What's Going On. You see, for those of you who don't know the the history, Marvin Gaye was an R&B icon known exclusively for love songs. You know, if you go back into the Motown sound, Ain't No Mountain High Enough... It Takes Two, I'm not gonna sing it for y'all. I Heard It Through the Grapevine. All of these songs were, were love songs, and, and so he was this R&B king, and in fact, when he went to the head of Motown, Barry Gordy, and said that he wanted to, to write these songs that were dealing with issues in his community, it's recorded that Gordy said, Marvin, you, this is, that's ridiculous. Stay in your lane. This is what has worked, this is what has been successful. But Marvin would, would ask himself, he said later on in an interview, that with the world exploding around me, how am I supposed to keep singing love songs? You see, he had a cousin that had died, and his brother had come back from Vietnam and, and was struggling, and, and it was, he was describing all that was happening around him. And so he picked up his pen and wrote this lament, picket lines and picket signs. Don't punish me with brutality. Talk to me so you can see what's going on. And even though these words were written 52 years ago, they still have resonance today. As we look at the picket lines, stand up, SAG, the picket signs, teachers, brutality all around, and we can just ask ourselves, what is going on? You see, Gay understood what Asaph was doing. He wasn't just complaining, he was lamenting the current situation, and the album, by the way, happened to be the biggest seller in his career. Why? Because he was real. The struggle is real, are you? The struggle is real is your worship. The church struggles with keeping it real. You know, it's very easy to come into the sanctuary in your Sunday best and just kind of smile and just, I actually feel like I'm supposed to, that somehow what it means to be faithful to God means to pretend like everything is great and perfect in my life. And this is result even in our songs that we sing or don't sing. And in his book, Prophetic Lament, which I definitely encourage, Dr. Soon Chan Ra writes this. Laments are prayers of petition arising out of need, but lament is not simply the presentation of a list of complaints, nor merely the expression of sadness over difficult circumstances. That's not what it is. He says, lament in the Bible is a liturgical response to the reality of suffering and engages God in the context of pain and trouble. The hope of lament is that God would respond to human suffering that is wholeheartedly communicated through lament. So what Dr. Ross pointing to and saying is that in the Bible, there's a long tradition of us bringing these type of Asaph's concerns and complaints to God. He didn't just write this in his journal and store it away somewhere. This was in their official hymn book. How long, O God? Will you forget me forever? He understood lament and hope that, I, that in order for me to get through it, I had to confront where I was struggling. I can't fake the funk. And unfortunately, Dr. Ra also in, in a prophetic lament realizes that he observes that 40% of the Psalms are laments. Yet when he did a analysis of the CCCI, the top hundred kind of worship songs that are sang in churches around the country, he did this back in 2012, only five out of a hundred were lament, could even qualify. There's this disproportionate sense the American church avoids lament. And you know what happens as a result of that? It creates a fakeness in our worship. It creates a perspective that says, I'm supposed to just pretend like we all good all the time. And on top of that, when you don't deal with lament, you don't deal with the injustices around you. You see, there's a certain privilege that comes with just pretending like everything is okay. We also have seen that throughout church history, the greatest jams, so to speak, have been written as, uh, in times of lament. The story behind It Is Well, O oh My Soul, is one of great lament and tragedy. Precious Lord, as uh, Mark preached on a couple of um, weeks ago with Thomas A. Dorsey, who was a blues man, who as a result of seeing and losing his child and his wife, began to pour his heart out to the Lord and wrote, Precious Lord, take my hand. But even Mark himself is an example of this. Back in 2020, y'all can remember during the time of, you know, the craziness of COVID, the, you know, murder of George Floyd. Mark actually wrote an EP called Meditations, Volume 1. And it has a few songs we often debate at the church about, which is the best, but our favorite. But it's a lament um, In my, the, the one that is the, the dopest is please don't pass me by, but it's inspired by Psalm 2, and this brother showed us and taught us and led us into how to lament. Because when things are going and breaking all around you, you can't just be like, God is good all the time. I have to be real, and I have to sh- struggle with that. By the way, that's a plug, go get that album. On. It's on iTunes or wherever you get your music. So support, support what is going, it's good music. But here's the reality. When we fail to lament, our worship pretends the struggle isn't real. But if we fail to direct our complaint heavenward, we get stuck. That's what happens. We get stuck. Because I don't know what to do with it. Like, like the, the disconnect between my reality and what I'm trusting God for, I, I, I'm just stuck if we don't lament and pour it out to God. And this is what Asaph does, and we see the response and the reaction in the next verse. He says, if I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed like a wearisome task. So what he's saying is that we're getting in Psalm 73, the whole process of his journey through this lament And so, he's like, yo, I couldn't just speak immediately. See, one of the problems, this is a sidebar. This is not in the notes. I'm just, there's so many instances online where I'm like, people get themselves in trouble because they blast private conversations in public. Like, I was having this conversation with my wife yesterday about a certain situation that happened online this week. And I was like, you know, if I had a problem with something that you did in public, you know who would be the last persons to know about it? Everybody on Twitter. What's wrong with people? But there's, there's, a, there's something that has happened where in our minds we think anything that's happening internally must be publicized. Asaph realizes he's struggling with this and he's praying and he's writing this and he doesn't give us the, the whole story until he's processed it through. It was a wearisome task. It says, verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned therein. He waited and held on and said, I need to get some perspective, I need to get some experience, and so it says he went into the sanctuary of God, and here's Asaph's solution. Worship is the way up. (laughs) Worship is the way up out of the situation. It says he went into the sanctuary. And Asaph is wrestling and he's thinking about the generational links of faith that have happened between his great-grandparents, his grandparents, him. And he's like, yo, before I just cut bait and throw this away, I got to think about my kids and their kids. And I got to put this in perspective. And he starts to think on a longer-term basis than what his immediate situation is. And it drives him into the house of God. And that might be some of you here today. You're struggling. It's exhausting. He says, it's a wearisome task to try to figure out how do I reconcile the brokenness in the world, the brokenness in the church, God and his goodness, and if that's you, then you're in the right place, because he says, until I went into the sanctuary of God, and he says, then I discerned therein. Asaph right here is starting to get real with his worship. And the first point to this is, now, the funny thing is, we don't know exactly what Asaph experienced when he went into the sanctuary. It doesn't tell us that. I think he went in there, and he probably heard Latisse on there and talking about some chains being broke, and was like, yes, God, I needed to hear this. We're told he goes into the place, and I think there's at least three things that cause the, the, the location to cause him to get, be able to worship his way out of this situation. The first is that the people of God offer godly perspective. The people of God offer godly perspectives. You see, the sanctuary is a place where you can come in and experience the presence of God, and it's not just based on your ability to will yourself out of the, a difficult situation. You know, there's oftentimes this question, you know, do I need to be a, go to church to be a Christian? And it's the wrong question. The real question is, how can I get myself into the sanctuary to discern God's perspective? The real question is, who might need my perspective in that congregation? Do, it's like this. like what, If someone says, like, um, do you need to go to school, to go to college to, to, in order to learn medicine? And it's like, No, I mean technically the books you can order anywhere else, but it would be kind of nice if my doctor, before he started working on me, had gone to med school. I'm just saying, it's an environment that has (laughs) built-in processes that will help me to experience that which I'm trying to go to. Not necessary, not a prerequisite, but really, really, really helpful. But the problem is in this Western individualistic culture, we begin to miss the need for people. And so we just think I can do that all by myself but sometimes what happens if I don't feel like it? What happens if it's raining and it's, I'm tired and I don't feel like doing nothing? And sometimes if I just get myself out of bed and get into the presence of other people, it actually helps push me forward. Not legalistically, but practically. Amen. There's a reason why in Revelation it says they overcame by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. You ever heard a testimony before somebody share, And you're like, I needed to hear that because I was going through. That happens, that's why we have prayer in the morning at 30s, Monday through Friday. That's why we go upstairs for a Bible study on Wednesday nights. That's why we gather on Sundays, not just so we can look at each other, but so that we can encourage each other. Second part that he experiences, not just in being in the sanctuary, is just around people, but praise produces a God-oriented perspective. We sang about that earlier. Now, I'm going to pull a page out of uh, Mark's book. You know, earlier in that sermon, he went through all this scientific information about, like, how songs, how we're wired in such a way. And as I was thinking about this issue of lament and struggle, I was like, I wonder, like, is there evidence about how the role that music helps us in the midst of when we are going through difficult times? And you know what I started to think about? and I started to see that there's actually evidence to show the impact that music in your playlist has when you work out. Yeah, 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 yeah. check this out. <clears throat> researchers, researchers have found that listening to music can make a workout feel less challenging. Research suggests that the music activates the uh, subcerebellum cerebellum and the amygdala in your brain, which regulates emotions, while also connect- activating the part that decreases fatigue. So literally, you know, you get your workout set with the right BPMs, and it can actually cause your body to push through the workout, and it feel less hard than it was. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. You get that power song going, like you're like, yo, I'm struggling right now, and then that song, and then it pushes you through. And they found that it's not just the beats per minute, but the lyrics themselves can provide additional motivation and affirmation. So, literally, God has designed our brains so that worship will help push us past pain into greater perspective. Like, thats it's built into us. We see it in history. The power song that they was rocking during the civil rights movement, We Shall Overcome. They put that joint in. Okay, I'm walking through the fire hoses, right? I know recently that joint to me, Jaira, Elevation worship, you know, you in some t- tough times? Yo, that'll push you through some stuff. He realizes this, and as the worship leader, he experiences this, and as a result, things turn around. So then his perspective changes in verse 18. Truly, you set them in slippery places, meaning the wicked. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and arrogant. I was like a beast toward you. Praise produces perspective about evil and ourselves. You see, he goes into the sanctuary and he may have been listening to that Psalm of Miriam in Exodus 15, where she talks about how, even after all the plagues and all the warnings that God gave Pharaoh and his army, they still went after his people to go bring them back into slavery. And as a result of that, the sea closed up on them and, and, and they were literally swept away. That same word that he uses here in Psalm 73. And this is a part, an aspect of God that we sometimes get uncomfortable with, like the judgment, the justice, like, wait a minute, because that can easily slide into judgmentalness of other people. But we have a built-in value of what it means to see people who do evil things get justice. Like, it was said many years ago that for about a 20-year window Harvey Weinstein, who was one of the top producers in Hollywood, was thanked and praised as much as God was during the Oscars. Think about that for a second. For someone who had the misfortune of happening by him, of being abused, what that may have been like. And so then imagine what it would have felt like to see him actually get sentenced. To see the stories that were told be vindicated and validated in careers on the line and the type of relief and rejoicing that would come when justice was served. But this isn't just looking outward, he also looks inward, and that's why he says, look, I was tripping, my soul was embittered, I was envious, and then you, I, by your grace, got an opportunity to experience something better. And that's the, also the hope of what it is. This, we're not just trying to look down on other people, because guess what, <laughs> we could be the wicked too sometimes. It's an op- opportunity for us to stay true so that we can then offer someone else a better way and a truer way of being. But how do we know? How do we know that this, this long-term perspective that, that is actually going to pay off if I don't see it? And this is where the whole panorama of Scripture helps us, and specifically the one in whom we can point to and with the hope that weeping may endure for a night but joy comes in the morning. In Hebrews twelve one and two, the writer of Hebrews says this, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight in the sin which so closely clings And let us run with endurance the race that was set before us. How? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus helps us maintain an eternal perspective because we can look at how the wicked seem to prosper in his life. Those who lied about him, those who literally sold him out for money, those who actually nailed him to a cross, it looked like the wicked prospered. And yet, three days later, his resurrection tells a whole different story and gives us hope that we too, if we hold on a little while longer, can have a renewed perspective. Lastly, with this, is we get to see God's presence be the perspective that we need. Look at verse 23. We read, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Ultimately, what changes Asaph's perspective is the people of God, the praise that he offers, but also the ultimate presence of God. There's no substitute for the fact that we can have total confidence in God in his life, death, and resurrection. And that confidence gives us the reminder that his very presence is with us even in the midst of when we are going through suffering, even in the midst of when we see the apparent prosperity of the wicked. And this is where essentially the definition of prosperity gets changed. And this is the ultimate point. If I define prosperity as primarily as financial, as physical, all of those things are temporary. But what if the prosperity that is really true is the intimacy in the presence of God in the first place? What if that is actually what prosperity is? Well, then it totally flips and changes my perspective. Look at how he ends up in verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Oh man, I, I wanna give y'all something real quick. Can we go into this a little bit? This is so deep. He starts off by asking questions like, yo, why do wicked we suffer, prospering? Why am I suffering? Now he's asking different questions. Who I, have I in heaven but you? I want nothing in this earth more than I want you, God. Why? Because you are the strength of my heart and my portion. And if I could just geek out a little bit here theologically for a second, that word portion, it points to the fact that he is a Levite. (laughs) The Levites were, there were 12 tribes. The 11 of the tribes got land appointed to them when you see in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, except for one tribe. One of the tribes, that got no land. One of the tribes, it says the, the Lord will be your portion. And so instead of depending on the land, on the financial fatness that Judah got, that Benjamin got, that all the others got, the Levites got God himself. And he says, that's the better portion. That's the portion that everybody else didn't get is that I got to be the one that go into the courts of the Lord and offer worship and lead other people. Whom have I in heaven but you? The Lord is my portion. When I understand that the Lord is my portion, that I can push through and I can have a deeper perspective, when you're struggling in life, don't turn away from God. Turn to the sanctuary of God. Experience Him as your portion and your perspective will be able to change. The struggle is real, is your worship. Well, the good news is we don't have to hide in some fake spirituality. God can handle our hardest questions and still love us. We don't have to pretend and be all sanctimonious. We can just come into the sanctuary and be real. And you may be here today. And you've thought the only way to win in this world was through wickedness. Jesus offers another way. You may be here and you've struggled with being faithful in the midst of just the presence and the persistence of injustice in this world. Well, you've come to the right place. You've come to an opportunity for us to experience and encounter God in a deep way. If you would stand with me, we're going to give you an opportunity to respond uh, to the message, if you like. Because the reality is we all are in places where we struggle sometimes. Like I said, I, it's, it's been a tough season in a lot of ways. But in the midst of all of that, God is offering him as our greater portion. And the reality is some of us know we've had moments where we've had physical prosperity, financial prosperity, but none of that, you can't take it with you. And nothing green remains. But if you today would like to encounter God, to step forward and say, I want the Lord to be my portion. I want something that's not going to fade or rust. Come forward. If today you're realizing, I recognize that even though I've envied those who seem to have it all together, or I've been one of those people who cut corners and even cut people to make it work. There's grace for you here today. So if you're here today, it's really simple. We're just gonna invite you into a relationship with Christ or restoring that relationship. There's something, there's no magic about coming to the front of an altar, but what it does give us is the opportunity to be around people to experience God's praise and his presence in a collective way. So if that's you today, we just invite you to make the Lord your portion. As we conclude, amen. Come forward. Yeah, come forward, sis. Come forward. Amen. Amen. Praise God. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Is there another? There's still time. There's still an opportunity. But I want to encourage you with this. Even if you're there and you might feel frozen in your seat or you're just not ready yet to, to make that decision. To don't stop struggling with God. Don't stop wrestling and even inviting people into that inviting God into your struggle let's pray together Father in heaven we thank you that you don't just leave us where we are but you invite us into your presence you give us people to work with and to walk with and you give us a praise on our lips that we can sing by faith that weeping may endure for the night but joy will come in the morning God, thank you that the struggle is real, but our worship can be real too because you are greater. Our present and momentary afflictions are not even worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed to those who love you. And so because of that, we worship and we thank you in Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship together. We hope this message was encouraging to you. We invite you to send us an email at info at bridgechurchnyc.com so we can hear how God used this message to speak to you. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. Our handle on all our social media platforms is at bridgechurchnyc. Our website is bridgechurchnyc.com. If you're in the New York City area, we would love to see you on a Sunday. Our services are at 1030 a.m. and noon on Sundays at 345 Adams Street in downtown Brooklyn. Thanks for listening to our podcast today, and we hope to see you soon.